0: G'day and welcome to the Hunter's Campfire Podcast. My name's Mark and along with good mate Ian, we're here to help with all things hunting. If you're looking to start but don't know where to begin, you want to make the most of your next trip away or even plan a hunt of a lifetime, we've got something for you. You'll find our podcasts on Apple, Google, Spotify, Amazon and plenty of others. And if you want more, head over to our YouTube channel. The Hunter's Campfire, where we have plenty of how-to and hunting videos, along with the full video production of every podcast. Don't forget to like and subscribe, and good hunting.
1: Welcome to another episode of the Hunter's Campfire podcast, and today we've got a guest that I've been trying to get onto this podcast for quite some time that we'll introduce you to shortly. But before we get into that, um, Mark, welcome to the podcast again. It's great to be back. It's been a couple of weeks since we've been able to put one of these together because, well, it's it's mid-raw, mid-rut, and actually stringing this together right now has been pretty hard.
0: Literally, uh, I was packing my gear before this, and I'll go be loading my gear in the truck after this because I'm going off. I'll be leaving tomorrow morning around 3 o'clock to see if i can get up there before first light to see if i can get myself a deer so yes we are right in the middle of uh red deer hunting so
1: it, it, it's exciting podcast
0: has, the podcast has taken a back a little uh, not a back seat but it's it has moved from priority one
1: yeah it has too and um paul welcome we won't tell everyone who paul is quite yet but welcome to the podcast our first new zealand guest so thanks for coming on yeah cheers guys thanks for having me uh, excellent mate. it's gonna be good fun so um Mark, heading up into the bush, we've got some pretty cool video that's going to be released mm. shortly. You were in and amongst seven stags the other day, um, some really good stuff on video, uh, restrained yourself, didn't get into uh, into taking one out with the new rifle yes. either. So that's
2: holding that
1: back, mate.
0: Yeah. it was. Look, I was actually talking to someone about it today. It was funny. I got up there um, before first light, so, you know, I was literally in the paddock in the dark and, I did a quick video intro and then I just heard them. So I just moved towards the sound, found that there's a place where I can usually sit in that first paddock, which is back against the tree. So, you know, I don't create a silhouette. So I sat there and they just went off and it was funny. They were so vocal and I knew there was so much action. I almost at that point said, I probably won't shoot anything today. There's just too much going on. You know, there is just too much to see and too much to experience. And pretty, pretty quickly, I made a decision uh, that I wouldn't shoot. Um, that being said, if when the light lifted, if there was a big double six on the hill, I would have, <laughs> would, have would have dropped him. but there wasn't, though it was just a couple of very nice double uh, it was a four five and a and a double three on that first hill. and then I saw, and then I so I, let, I recorded them, I filmed them, heard them roaring, and then um went around, I, I literally walked away from them went around to another part and bumped another two and when the one one of the ones I bumped that second time uh, that was a shooter he was a good 55 and he had he was beamy and he was nice and then again decided oh, I'll keep going and I got to the top of the hill and there was another three roaring um, two on an opposite uh, on on another property but one directly below me and that's the one that basically he walked up on me and I, I, he was bow range, and I, and I don't mean compound either. I mean he was he was my, you know, bare cardiac range. You know, so, so to be honest, if I had the bow, I probably would have taken that shot. But I was just, and the only reason he left was I, I, I in the end I lifted up my head above the camera, and he he you know he 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 knew I was there, but that panicked him, and so he just bolted around. And as soon as he ran, he ran up the side of the hill and exposed himself, and. The other one started roaring at him. Mm. He just kicked on. So it was just one of those days I thought I'd rather carry the camera today. But um, I am kind of under the obligation that I will shoot a couple of deer for the landowner. So I've, I've actually got to get over that tomorrow and um, and see which one. So I've got to make a pretty hard decision tomorrow which one I'm going
2: to drop. Well, good luck with it. We'll, we'll see mm. it on video. Paul, yep. have you been out? You've been out and about this year? I haven't, I haven't even been out this raw yet, no. Nah. Um, I often don't do a lot of hunting during the raw Mm. tend to do, well, I'll hunt all year round and I generally do duck out a couple of times in the raw In the past, a few times I have done some pretty serious trips in the raw and a lot of hunting. Um, I tend, my main hunting season is really during the winter, um, meat hunting, bush hunting over the dogs. Um, you know, when there's no, there's no, uh, fawns to worry about and, you know, I, I pretty much do all of my hunting on public land. And it can be quite busy during the raw. I'm not a huge trophy hunter. Yeah. Um, like I say, more of a meat hunter over the dog. So I haven't been out yet this raw. Um, I'm getting pretty itchy feet at the moment, though.
1: Yep, I can imagine. And after another conversation with two blokes that are keen to get out, you're probably more eager by the end of tonight. Um, <laughs> well, good luck when you do get out. Uh, we're about to head off. Uh, where are we? Uh, it's Thursday now. We've got uh, 15 hunters coming into a hunter's camp on uh, public land or well, in a couple of days we're all mm-hmm. heading we've got people coming from south australia 17 hour drive to get into camp but people from victoria they're coming 12 hour drive to get into camp we're coming down from queensland so we're six or seven hours 15 all come into one location lots of instruction lots of support lots of help head out into public land area it's um the block that we're on is about uh, 25 kilometers by 50 kilometers in size so it's a, it's a fair amount of Country right on the right on the top of the um, the dividing range. It's got Reds. It's got Fallow. It's got some rumour of whoppity red hybrids that have come off the back of the farm over there. So it's going to be interesting. Lots of pigs, some goats in there. So um, good experience for the new guys to come in and get a lot of support. So we're in the final planning stages for that, and uh, we're all pretty pumped. So there's lots of chatter going on around that. But in the in the meantime, of course. In the news, we've got what elections being called, so people are trying to figure out what's going on with that and who we're going to vote for. We've got aerial culling and baiting going on just before the rut and the raw this year over here. These parks getting bombed up, and it's like it's it's just stirring things up again. Why they do it just before everyone hits the hills, I don't know. You, you're getting the same problems over there, Paul, aren't you?
2: Ah, uh, we get a bit of it, yeah. Um, and you know, this is a whole pretty huge mess of subject on its own. Um, yeah, there's been a little bit of news floating around. A couple of fairly good public land spots were bombed with 1080 just before the raw. Um, you know, the hunt- hunting groups in New Zealand do put a bit of pressure on the departments that do that sort of poison stuff to try to avoid it. Um, but, yeah, um, similar to sort of what you're saying, they they that side is always wanting to do more and we're always wanting them to do less and it's just mm. always... Mm. Like, and getting in each other's way but um yeah so that block you're talking about there is that public land is it yep. yeah but yeah. you're taking all those guys hunting yep. yep
1: yeah so public land over here is uh it's, it has to be booked it's not like uh dock land over in new zealand i know in parts of that there are bookings you know there are ballots and those sorts of things but but here there's a, a certain amount of hunters that can go on a certain size of land I can't remember the exact numbers, but I think it's is it
0: 450 hectares per hunter per or something hunters, like that.
1: Something. So something basically,
0: like they just they just divide up. It's public land, so they just literally do a, a safety audit. So they divide it up by 450 hectares and say, okay, that's the the ratio of hunters that it can hold at any one
1: time.
2: And is that the whole time, all year round?
1: Yep, all year round.
2: Far out. So you've got a you've got a book in your hunts. Yeah, so you come into a training session. So I'm
1: a I'm a what we call a Hunter Leap trainer, which means that you can come to us and get your um, restricted game license certification. You pay your fee, 100 bucks for the year, 75 bucks for the year, something like that. And that gives you access to a website. And that website lists all of the parks. So there's um, there's some I'm going to call it 165, 170 parks
2: available to choose.
0: I think it's more than that, mate. Right? I think it's about Yeah, might have
2: increased a bit more, but it's about 3 is it like, is there heaps of country, and yes, people can always get in, or is it some oh, yeah. peak yeah. times yeah. people are applying and you miss out, or is there just bucket loads of it?
1: There's there's lots of space. There's lot there's lots of parks you can book, but only some of them have deer. Mm. So those that have you know decent quality deer in them, obviously are going to book out. So where we are, um, twenty five kilometres by fifty or twenty by fifty kilometres, um, is made up of what we call the Nundle system. Nundle is the main park. It's got two or three other parks around it. Collectively, there's about, I'm going to say, 45 hunting spots in that at any point in time, and you're allowed to book two parks at once, right? So I can book, you know, Nundle and Hanging Rock, which adjoin each other, which means you've halved the amount of spots straight away, and most people do book two. So we're going into this park expecting somewhere between 25 and 30 hunters around us, no different to what you would be doing in DOC, just sharing the space and hunting where you want to hunt. You don't carve that block up amongst those hunters. It's a free-for-all once you're in there. So, yeah, it's interesting.
0: Yeah. So, like, one of the forests that I, I really enjoy hunting is the Pilliga system. And I think Pilliga holds 250 hunters mm. at any one time. And, like, you'll be in there and there'll be three of you, you and three other mates, and that, that's all there is so you you'll have you know 100,000 hectares to yourself and and if you book the adjoining forest it, you just you know you have an you have a massive expanse that you might not see anyone for a week in but then you get outside of sydney there during the roar and stuff like that you know you do it gets there is a level of competition so and some of the forests Uh, regarded as such good deer that they actually have a ballot system. So that, and that's Mm. a a bit of a hangover from the, from the game, um, from the the, the game rating that, so deer in New South Wales, and we are talking about New South Wales here only, had a game status that has been, uh, I think the term is temporarily reduced. So they had a season, there was a season and stuff like that, that now doesn't exist. So some of the parks that are, that are known as deer hotspots had ballots, and um, it was Jase got onto one of those,
1: didn't he? Yeah, Jace, one of our previous guests, got onto the Margyle South Block. Yeah, has just returned. We won't reveal all his results at this point, yeah. but uh, yeah, it's uh, you know, they were surrounded by deer. Yeah, uh, but I understand during the ballot, it's it's stags only. Don't mm. take meat deer. Yeah, and so they, they have funny rules.
0: Yep. Yeah, and I think you only get four days as opposed to seven. Or something like that. There, there is there there is the limitations, but only on a very few blocks. And so some other blocks are bow only, um, and some allow you to uh, dog at night. So they 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 do. There is uh a, a variances, but basically, if you wanted to, you could hunt and never see another person. If you wanted mm. to, there's okay. there's some big blocks that you know uh, that if you want to travel to, you'll you'll be by,
2: you know you'll be on safari. You Be by yourself, even at a peak time, sort of thing.
0: Oh, right. well, if they don't carry deer, then yeah. there isn't that's right. They, they, if it's ferals, like there's goats and pigs and stuff like that, you'll just be in there. I mean, I, I've been a nundle, well, I've been going to nundle since 2009. And you know, I, I think I, I could count on the hand on that one hand, the time that we met someone who wasn't part of our party there.
1: Yeah, yeah, you know, mid but, raw, there's one major park in the middle of it called ponderosa park it's it's sort of right in the middle of the whole lot and it's you know it's got long drop toilets and good camp facilities and it's got a big pond so you can draw water and those sorts of things um, you would expect to see a lot of people last straw i went in there uh, with a group of people we didn't see another soul yeah you know and what i think are the the best areas to go and hunt in there i've never bumped into anybody so people go far and wide everyone's got their idea of where the best place to hunt is and you know, hopefully you don't run into too many. I've only had one one uh, dude on a trail bike come screaming past me yeah um, once but that's that's the only person I've ever seen. so it's it's a good system and it's and super safe system is that booking system
2: nationwide?
0: No, that's only New South Wales so New South Wales. So yeah. public land is controlled at a state level.
2: Yeah
0: so that's New South Wales. Victoria have probably a closer system to you guys experience. Mm. um So you basically seek access, and once you have access, then you have access. Off you go, type thing. That's more of a, um, yeah. So yeah. like it's like you you basically gain uh, the ability to hunt on public land, and once you have that, whatever the licensing is, then that's it. That that's your access. So um,
2: is the licensing fairly simple to get? Like here in New Zealand, you basically just damn near anyone can do it. You just go online, oh. fill out a form, and and it. You you basically just What a permit here is, is really just signing your name that you've written, written, uh, that you've read all of the rules and terms and conditions, and you're signing your life away saying, yep, I know all the rules. So then if you break them, you're liable, basically. That's really what Mm. a hunting permit is here. Is it the same here or is there more to it?
0: Um, I would say the Victorian one is more, more aligned with what you're talking about.
1: Yeah, in Victoria, you can just log in. That's Put your details and
0: pay your money. So you're just basically applying to have access. Whereas in New South Wales, it is what well, well you know it is a it is more it is both described and is 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 operated probably more like a license, as in like a vehicle license. So you do there is a test, and there is requirements that you meet. Um, that being said, you know it's it's not arduous, and it's probably it's probably a great indicator if you if you can't pass your R license and maybe golf's the game for you type thing, you know. So well, you know, I think golf would be a challenge if you can't pass <laughs> your right, license. it license. That's right. That's If you don't pass it, then that's probably telling you a lot, you know, that maybe you know firearms are not for you type thing. But it yeah,
1: looks pretty it's, it's basic. An, it's so an, it's, open book,
0: it's an open led, book, instructor led. And it, uh, it's very much about positioning you. So it's actually got some really it's actually quite interesting because, you know, it says, you know, it talks about that the fact that um, you know, that uh, you, what your role is, is 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 part of your role is to present hunting to the public, you know. So, you know, you need to you need to do that. You need to be aware of of how your perception and all that stuff because public land in New South Wales is public land. So as Ian said, you could be there and a you know, a guy could come past on a, on a trail bike. You could be there, and I remember once I was down in Nundle. One of the local, uh, I think they were the Polish club or something. They came to pick mushrooms. Mushrooms. So you know you are going to inc- you're going to encounter other people doing other activities that are le- legal. And uh, for instance, the Nundle system is a pretty well known fossicking area. So there's a good it's chance that you'll meet someone fossicking. You know,
2: is that fossicking for gold? No gemstones, uh, uh, it's like.
0: sapphires and stuff like that. But yeah, for, for you know semi precious stones and stuff like
1: that. But you're going to have somebody huddled down in a pig like position in the creek.
0: <laughs> yeah, All right. So yeah. you are going. To, you need to be aware of, of what you're doing and who and and what your you know what your role is because you will encounter and horse riding and things like that. So you will encounter, or you you have the potential to encounter um other public land users. Mm-hmm. The good thing about where – the the good – I suppose the the good thing is as hunters, we want to be as remote as possible, and whereas other day users, you know, don't necessarily want to do that. So that's why I think personally you don't actually encounter a lot of people because, you know, you kind of go – yeah, okay, that's where the car park is. So I want to be as far away as that as I can, whereas, you know, the, the other day users have a different approach. So that's why I think you very rarely actually bump into people because we're going to the places. And, I mean, when you go to somewhere like the Pilliga or, or those more um, Central West ones, you know, people don't like them. They're, they're scrubby, hard, dry, dirty, hard places. You know, they're not a something that you're going to get a big tourist activity to. So it, it actually plays in your favour.
2: Mm, but there's still some good deer hunting there, eh? if you're going to go out <coughs> and work. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. yeah. And you guys are talking it up. You guys are ma- making me want to come over there and do something. No, no, hey, no, right. you
1: should. You, I mean, and, and I thought maybe that was where your line of questioning was going. How hard is it for me to get that licence and come and join? Um, it's not difficult. I had a fella from South Australia call the other day, really keen, listens to the podcast, has understood what we're doing. How do I come along? And I said, well, you know, have you if you got your permit? Well, no, you don't. All right, well, we'll book in tomorrow. We'll do a one-on-one. We'll get your permit sorted out. So he gets a certificate. He emails it on a Sunday to the game licensing unit. On Monday, he's got his permit. Like oh. they they want to process as many people through as they yeah. can. And on Tuesday, we booked him in. So he was done. And now he's just planning to get over there. So it, it they're a good animals. You know, if you if you want to do a trip to Australia to chase I mean, if you're going to come here, you would probably want to go and chase the samba down and down in Victoria. Um, absolutely gold uh, if you're you know you're hunting over dogs, uh, and I mean indicators, not not hound hunting. Hound hunting is a whole separate beast over here that mm. people get right into, and you know that's an experience in its own right. But yeah, certainly there's there's some good opportunities. I don't, I don't think you're going to find Otago quality stags over here, but the red deer stags, you know, the reds, you know, they they have a quality of their own. And our pigs are way better. Our pigs are. uh, That's rubbish, mate. You can't say that. You can
0: eat pigs in New Zealand and they they don't kill you.
2: They're big, hooky, ugly animals over here, mate. I've seen (laughs) some good reds over in Australia and, um, you know, like through media and that magazine stuff. But that 100% pigs. Um, I remember even going back years ago reading hunting articles and magazines, you know, about guys bow hunting pigs. Uh, Maybe in the Northern Territory somewhere. (laughs) land but they were shooting like multiple big boars on these trips bow hunting
1: um yeah pig hunting over here is a different story yeah you know the new zealand pig hunting is a bit different um but yeah there's some big stuff over here mark's mad yeah. mad for pigs you said you can't eat them
2: well what's wrong you can, but, you got, you, you, you can but people die
1: how so yeah. well because they eat a lot of meat They carry you know, the brucellosis and, and various different other things that are out there. There are there are recent articles of families that have taken home wild pig, not cooked it properly and not woken yeah, up. That's um, right. And I'm a colorblind dude. Uh, half the reason why I got a dog mm-hmm. to indicate, to track, because I'm colorblind and I like to bow hunt as well. And and I'm shit scared of shooting an animal and not being able to find it. Mm-hmm. Um so I went I went the dog route. Um, which has been fantastic. But I just yeah. Pigs are dangerous. Being colourblind, I don't know whether it's cooked or it's not cooked. Not cooked, so the I just moment. leave it alone. You Need to get one of those the Yeah, you know, <laughs> I, I go the thermometer. I still like. I don't know. I just can't do it. Anyway, some people so, do. Depends where you get them. About get hunting,
0: them. about about hunting it as a as a as a trip. I did uh back in 2018. I did a ten. I did a ten day road road trip hunt, and it was fantastic. And look, and you know, so i uh, managed. Um, deer, goat, and pig in the 10 days. Um, so, you know, it was fantastic. Um, and that that's the thing, you know, and what, so, and it took a bit of um, coordination, but it was great fun. And, you know, we did a lot of Ks and we had a lot of good laughs and met mates in camp and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it's the public land hunting in New South Wales, I, I can't talk highly enough about it because, and I think the real reason why is, you're never going to get the kind of reds you see in New Zealand in on public land, or you might fluke one. But what you're going to do is they're going to give you a permit or a license where they're going to go say, "Here's what four million acres, mm-hmm. go for it." You, and and it's kind of it, I, I I always describe it. It's you know it's average Joe safaris. You load up, you, you get all your gear, you load yourself up, or you do what Ian does, is you draw a great big you know camper trailer behind you and away you go and you can keep going and because you can book seven days seven days seven days you know if you wanted to you could just keep rolling around and keep hunting so
2: well it's such a big country isn't it you know and i find Mm. australia really interesting because it's a huge country um and there's like so many different sort of climates and areas you know as you go around it from sort of um down in victoria you got it can be cold and thick bush hunting and all of that and um i think what does new south wales sort of a combination of the two and then well, you a,
0: could you could bounce up through new south wales and victoria and do your samba and then you can work your way up in the the hotter country and look for goats and pigs you can then there's and fox fallow. there's reds and fella, and there's foxes and there's and there's bunnies and there's hares and mm. and if you get a rice mitigation one you get the right you get on there, there rice mitigation. You can, you know, shotgun ducks over rice and stuff like that. So when you
1: get
2: sick of red meat, you go
1: and kill that's, right, that's right. That's right.
0: That's right. Yeah. And if you want to have a fish, go have a fish. So that's yeah, there, there, and, there's,
2: and there's um stuff that can kill you and eat you and sting you and <laughs> oh man, there's that everywhere. That's that that, that <laughs>
0: you, don't, you don't you don't have to leave your bedroom for
1: that to happen. It's <laughs> just in the gun room. Yeah. That's right. yeah. that's just <laughs> we, uh, we uh we had a snake the other day on the just outside our driveway. It was rounder than my site so really well it was it was it was a massive carpet python oh yeah huge thing i've never seen anything so big and uh, we had a small one here the other day i found the shed just in my gun room actually the the skin shedding and it was taller than me um so i you know i'm six six one six one and a bit it was only about that round yeah so can you imagine what that is like they're here eating possums they're eating yeah. cats you know they'll take your dog yeah you know, they're they're a big they're big yeah. Man. They might not be eating small pigs and stuff. <laughs> oh, it's just unbelievable! We got rams like, in the paddock. That's what we're worried
0: about. We're out, we're in deer and bandy on oh, just last week. And just um, just above the 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 men's toilets, when you walk through, when you're walking out, just looking up, there was this nest of redbacks just above just above oh. the toilet door, there. Door, door, door. So I had the boys with me and said, "Mate, come here and just steer them and just watch out." But
1: nothing pulled I've got a bitey spider in here yeah, in my right. office. It's about it's a bit bigger than my hand. Ah yeah, it's nice running around in here. Yeah, nice um huntsman. It's, it's, yeah, it's a huntsman. It's one of yep. those bitey. eh? Yeah, he, he'll bite but he's not um dangerous. Nah, they, they they
0: they they do give you a funny little thing when they bite you though. Mm. You yep. kind of get like a not like a, you get kind of like a skin
2: skin rash. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah. will keep you on your toes. You'd be welcome to come over, we'll sort you out.
2: Yeah, mate, that's easy. all right it's just a whole new um a whole other set of things to be aware about and manage you know that we don't have any of that stuff here yeah Uh, and and it's i found i find it really interesting you know looking at uh, people hunting in america and that and i've got Mm. about bears, and and in australia you guys have got Heaps of crazy stuff, you know, crocodiles and freaking
1: Just don't... They don't really walk out the door thinking about it. You know, we will come across a snake in the bush from time to time. You know, they're the sorts of things we've got to worry about our dogs and make sure that they're, you know, not going anywhere near them. Um, my one's good. She indicates them. She doesn't, she doesn't go for them, which is great. Um, but, you know, you don't walk out the door thinking, you know, snakes, crocodiles, those sorts of things. No. I mean, crocs I are way up north anyway. I wonder
2: but... if you sort of naturally... You know, you have a natural awareness about it. And if you come over here, we'd be doing things, I don't know, sleeping on the ground or doing things slightly differently that you're looking at like, man, I wouldn't do that like that where I come from. Yeah. And is, do you think there's that or do you think it's on I'm potentially imagining it as being more of a thing than what it actually is when you
0: get the reality is it's it's real. I mean, every mm. you know, every every summer, you know, there's two or three people die of snake bikes. Like every year, someone probably will get taken by a shark. But what is the real? And Brian Ball talks about that in the, in the when we spoke to him on the podcast about the Northern Territory. It's actually the climate. The climate is a real is your real challenge. And for us, um, just like you guys, you know, the climate is a real challenge in the Alps. Here, the real challenge is the heat. Mm. That that is that it that will get you quicker than anything. You know. Yeah, the, the carpal python might swallow your dead body, but, you know, it's the heat that'll put you on the ground. So that's what for, from, for us to really what we think, what you need to give a lot of thought to is the heat. Because even now, you know, it's still what, 27, 28 degrees and I'll be up there tomorrow morning and, you know, it'll be coolish when I get there. But by nine o'clock with the pack on, it's going to be warm. And if I take a deer, I've got to get him out. And that's, that's the, that's for me, I think is the real challenge. The heat, the heat can be, and it, and the thing is, it's insidious. It sneaks up on you. You don't, you don't kind of realize it until it, you, you kind of go, oh, look, that, that's something wrong or I'm getting dizzy or things like that. And there's been a couple of times, both in the pillager actually, where I have went, okay, I've gone past it. I'm taking. I'm resting. I'm out for the rest of the day, guys, simply because of the heat.
1: Yeah, I put myself like into trouble.
2: Yeah. Dehydrating, a heat stroke, and you. I guess about um, like hyping a tree mirror and keeping on top of your your salt and all of that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: So the other thing that I took for granted uh, when I was in New Zealand is just how much natural water you have. You yep. can go anywhere in the Kaimes and you're going to find water. Yeah, mm. like it's not hard to find the nearest creek. Over here, you go to the Pilliga times of the year you know you're talking how big is that place half a million hectares
0: uh, i think it's about hundred twenty thousand hectares yeah well, that, that that's one but it's, it's well they they always refer to it the million wild million wild acres so it's you know when you think, take it the whole lot into it yeah
1: there's no running water in there for a lot of the time you might no. find a couple of dams around the place but a couple of dams you know in a million acres you know yeah. If that's you don't it. manage your water, you're you're in trouble. But that's not always. I mean, at the moment we're in we're in the raw, as Mark said, it's been up in the mid twenty fives. Um, you know, at the moment, you know, typically you think of the red deer roar as a cold period of time. They start roaring when the temperature when the temperature drops. We're still getting very warm days up here, and they've mm. just adapted to it to the climate Queensland, and you just don't get that. Um, where we're going um, next week, so we're heading down New South Wales, but up onto the top of the mountains will be in the the range of 4 degrees to 12 degrees. Right, so that's very different. You know, you're now managing cold Mm -hmm. and, you know, we've got more water, so uh, you you pick your spots. Time's a year, snowy mountains are snowy mountains. Doesn't matter where you are, snow's cold. Um, And you you can get in trouble. So, yeah. 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 All right, let's get into a bit about Paul. Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. So uh, we've had... You'll know, Paul, how many um, Australian uh, customers, if you want to call them that, people training dogs, uh, you've had over the time, lots of them have been, when you talk to Paul, when you're talking to Paul, mm-hmm. can you get Paul on the podcast? So uh, there'll be a bunch of them that have guessed who you are already by the fact that you're wearing your shirt and your logo, and we all recognise your voice from all of the training hours that we sit there uh, day after day and week after week for 14 or 15 months going through dog training. But for those that haven't guessed, uh, Paul Michaels, again, welcome to the podcast. It's it's awesome to have you here, and we've got heaps to talk to you about. Um, for those that don't know, um, Paul, I think your headline act really is the big game indicating dog program and the blueprint. I might not have that wrong. There might be some super stellar thing out there that I've not heard of, and I'll hear about it shortly if there is. But you've done uh, the blueprint that almost everyone that's into indicating dogs uh, in Australia and certainly in New Zealand knows about it. You see the socials, anyone asking about how to train a dog, Blueprint's up there straight away, which is fantastic to see. Um, Pelmico Dog Guide, another one similar to the Blueprint, but more of a family dog-style training uh, program and uh, another really good one to look at. And the author author of, and I have a signed copy of <laughs> Hunting Lucky, so you either were really nice to me or, all um, right, uh, you signed everyone's copy, which is probably more of the point. But thank you that's a great read and i and i uh, recommend anyone has a look at that it's it's a it's a great story about all of your life as a hunter uh, right up in um up until pretty recently i imagine i haven't looked at the dates but it sounds fairly recent got a youtube channel you've got lots of great hunting stuff going on um and there's there's so much to start talking about uh, but i'd love to start with um probably a little bit about the book if you don't mind because that really talks about you as a hunter, as a young fella, your possum trapping days, and those sorts of things. So, um, let's start with the book. How long did it take you to decide to write a piece of stuff that should be on our
2: on our bookshelves? It's a great read. How long did it take me to decide to write it? Um, <clears throat> I'm not sure. You know, like I started hunting when I was seven years old. Uh, my dad gave me my first ear rifle when I was seven. Um, And I was pretty obsessed with it straight away. And not long after that, I started reading. I wasn't really into school, wasn't really into maths and that, but I started reading a lot by the time I was probably about 10. um, And by the time I was sort of 13 or 14, I was reading right into reading all of the classic New Zealand hunting books, you know. Mm. Um, And I actually wrote an article my first article for a magazine when I was, I think I was 13 or 14. I wrote it about shooting my first deer, shot my first deer when I was 13. And they didn't actually publish it. I see, we sent it in and they didn't publish it, but they sent a cool little letter back and put my photo up in like the, you know how a lot of hunting magazines have a sponsored sort of kids yeah. page where they put up, old oh, such and such shot his first rabbit and this guy shot his first deer or whatever it is. They put it up in that and... um and then, yeah, just always did a huge amount of reading and was right into photography. So I guess it was sort of my whole life that took me to decide to write a book. Mm. And then, um, but I didn't, I never really thought I would. Um, but then through, it was almost by chance, like a, a sort of a series of, um, a long series of events led me to be living in the Uauweras, Te Uruwera in Forest Park, um, trapping possums. And uh, it was when I was in there um, that I basically found myself doing uh, something similar to what the people that had written some of my favourite books had done, you know, Mm. living in the bush in one of the best areas in New Zealand, um, living in there, trapping possums, seeing a lot of animals, shooting a lot of deer, living that lifestyle and um, and I was reading a lot of books while I was in there, too, and a lot of time to think sort of living in the bush on your own. And that's when I decided, yeah, that I'm going to write a book.
1: And it's a good yarn. a very traditional Kiwi style, I imagine. well, not imagine. I know I've read a lot of those books as well, and it's you know it's it's just something you pick up and don't put down. It's a shame there's not a sequel. Maybe there will be at some point. but um yeah, i um I think it's a great thing and 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 thanks for doing it. Um why the Yule wearers, to your it's it's a it's a gnarly piece of bush i mean in in the north island you wouldn't find much more challenging than that i think other than maybe the superjack and the kai which is a bit of a pain in the neck but it's it's a very old you know
2: large piece of land um i mean why the Yule wearers? i mean i first hunted the Yule wearers when i was about 15 years old um a mate of mine who was a couple of years older than me lived up the road and um you know this is before social media and all that sort of mm. stuff and i distinctly remember him saying man I've, I've heard of this different kind of deer and he was talking about rusa deer because we we live uh grew up on the foothills of the climb where we pretty much just had reds and i would heard a seeker a lot everyone knew about seeker mm. um but yeah neither of us had heard a heard a rusa and um, he got heard about it from somewhere, I read a book about it or something, and we went down and chased them around and um, kicked around in there off and on a little bit throughout my teenage years. But then in my 20s, I started trapping possums full time, and it was actually a, um, a fur bio from Whakatani, which and, I, and that's where sort of the book takes is up the Whakatane River which runs out of the Yua out to the Whakatane town, out to sea, you know, and um, a fur buyer from Whakatane, Bruce Dawson, who was actually an ex-deer culler who worked, you know, grew up in Whakatane and culled deer in the Yua up the Whakatane River. Mm. And um, he transitioned from that to, from deer culling to meat hunting to possum trapping and sort of a combination of, the, of two or three of those at sometimes two over the years. But um I was trapping in the climb-wise on all the bushages and stuff and I did that for a few years. Um and but I was running out of possums. And I kept saying to Bruce, like over this one season, as it was getting harder and harder, I was going further and further afield and getting less and less fair. I kept saying, Man, I'm do you know any good blocks? Um, because I'm running out of possums. And he kept saying,
1: they, get, they get allocated by doc though, the blocks? Or uh, is it a free for all at that point?
2: It's not, it it is, um, you have to apply. It's pretty easy, but yeah, you do get a block and it's one person in a block at a time. Yep, yep. Um, But I was doing a lot of private land trapping in the Kaimais and and it was, (laughs) it was a long time ago, but it was sometimes a little bit of a free-for-all sometimes in places as well. But um, yeah, he wanted me to sort of keep going where I was, but, Eventually, I completely run out, and I just said to him one day, "Like oh, I'm done, man. I don't know where I'm going next." And he said, "Okay, I'll take you." My guys about to start going up into the into the U-aware-ers and I've got I've actually got a block in there, because um, you can do that too. And he had an arrangement where he would get several blocks, and um, they had a jet boat, and they would go up and down. Um, hmm. we had one guy going up and down, and they'd usually get a couple, of, one or two trappers a year. Um, and he would take you up and set you up, and then he would sort of be going in and out once or twice a week, um, bringing your fur out and bringing food back up. Um, and then with the part of the dealers, is, is of course that he buys your fur. Um, and I didn't actually know I knew I was going into the Uaweras, I knew I was going into the Whakatani River, um, I knew I was going into the middle of the Uaweras, but I didn't really know how good that area was, you know. I was being you, you talking about. The aware has been one of the most rugged places mm. in the North Island. The area where I was is probably one of the best and nicest. Yeah, okay. Yeah. As far as a fully forested area, um, it's nice, man. And and all the bushes open and it's all rolling and really nice ridge and spur systems and nice rivers and creeks. You can basically just go anywhere. It's As far as bush hunting and bush trapping, it's sort of the hunter's dream. It's just... It's really freaking good, you know. And um, I didn't know much about it, but and I was really just going there to trap. And and uh, I didn't even take a gun the first the first run. And um, <clears throat> uh, yeah, and then he, he I, I got taken up there on the jet boat. I got told, I got given a map. Here's your block. Start on this ridge, and and I started trapping. And yeah, it was just incredible. There was animals everywhere, and then and then. Um, Actually, the first trip the first trip was meant to be two weeks, and Bruce said, um, bring two weeks' food and gear, and we'll see how you go. And that first run ended up being six weeks. I stayed in for six weeks, and then I come out for about 10 days and went back in for another month. And I did that for, I started in July, and I did that till about the end of October, that first season. And then I went back the next year and helicoptered in to a similar area. And then that was basically the, well, and it comes out in the book, but that was basically the run and the rotation was Mm. uh, once I started flying in, four to six weeks food and gear and you do one flight in and drop off and that was you for six weeks. And, And by then I was taking a gun in and doing a lot of hunting and then I got Tessa and trained her up and all of that. Unreal.
1: That's a long time on your own. Right,
2: it, it was unreal, you know, and um, and yeah, it is. Yeah. So,
0: were you staying in, in what in tents or how? What was your or you, was it huts or what was you doing? Yeah, dock huts. Yeah, okay, yeah. so.
2: Yeah. Yeah, staying in good huts. One block later on, didn't have a hut on it, and I built my own hut, um, just framed up out of like manuka poles, and then wrapped it all in big heavy mm. cups and had a fireplace in it as well um in a lot of ways it was almost better than some of the dock huts i stayed in but um but you yeah, always had good huts
0: okay yeah, yeah. get
2: many visitors uh, sometimes you uh, you go through quiet periods but actually generally a lot of people coming and going mm. and so you think oh that's a lot of time on your own and i did spend a lot of time on my own um but yeah, I mean, that's probably the period of my life where I spent the most time with the most people. Yeah. Let Interesting, family, isn't it? Uh? Yeah. 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 Public huts with with people coming and going. I used to try and see how long I could go without seeing anyone. Um, I used <laughs> to get annoyed sometimes. Like, it used to be people after people after people, and then I'd think, man, I'm, hopefully i will get a nice quiet run here or something, and then someone else would t- Sometimes it used to do your head in.
0: Yeah, so were like, they hikers or hunters or combination?
2: Uh in there, um, and it, this is that's an interesting point for lots of reasons, but in there it was like 99% hunters.
1: Oh, okay. Yep. Well, they would have been picking your brains for where that's it, went. yeah,
0: they they're bothering the hell out of you. So yeah, trying to get yeah. the
1: yeah. we um I took a mate of mine over to Jackson's Bay years back, um, yep. South Island, yeah, down south, yep. Yep. yeah. So it was our our first uh, attempt to go back into New Zealand. Well, my first attempt to go back into New Zealand to do some hunting, and we'd just fly Greenstone helicopters out of Jacksons Bay. We'd go into the Stafford or somewhere like that, um, drop into one of those hunts, but um, uh, into the huts. But the first time we went over there, we bumped into a fellow we called Possum Pete. There's a possum trapper that was at that hut that you know telling the same story that you are really. Uh, he was a, actually an Australian policeman that had a marriage bust up and decided to go and become a hermit. And he said the same thing. He said, I tried to become a hermit, but I'm so social. Everyone, he, and usually, but he said, the good thing is um, it's very, very hard to walk to this hut. Um, it's a really horrible track and it's usually washed out. So you've got to fly in, which means that the chopper's always bringing me another gas bottle to fill up, taking the fur out. Um, you know, hunters, you know, I mean, we were it was ridiculous. We went with all of this dehigh food and um we probably left 90 percent of it there for him so he was living like a king for the next little while and um but yeah he was you know basically he took he said oh, i'll just take the day off then you guys are here and um i'll take you up and show you where to shoot the deer up up the creek that he called the the larder and um yeah without fail you could go up there and shoot a deer anytime you wanted he just knew that habitat yeah. back to front because he you know he was immersed in it and he was part of it and i think that's that's a draw card i think for a lot of people but I'm not sure too many people can deal with the solitary life that um, you would be as a, as a trapper a lot of the time, but yeah, unreal story. an really interesting part of life.
2: Yeah. Yeah. It's a really good point. And um, the people that, you know, there's lots of interesting points The the people coming in and it's something to do with the bush and hunting and, and um, being in a remote spot and no TV and no nothing. Um, pretty much never had a bad word with anyone the whole time and used to always get on with everyone. Occasionally, Mm. you'd have someone turn up. And if I remember, like, as an example, um, I remember a crew turning up in the raw and I had a stag, a decent stag head, leaning against the veranda when they turned up. And this one guy was instantly pissed off. Like, the, the helicopter pilot said you were trapping. We didn't know you were shooting stags. We're here to shoot stags and you've been shooting stags. Um, but within a day or two of of you know him hunting and me, you know that whole their whole crew hunting and then talking at night, um, and you're all in a little hut, so you've really got no other choice other than to get on with each other. And I would tell people where animals were. Um, it, it was just amazing how you always seem to get on with everyone, and everyone sort of puts their best foot forward when you're out hunting in the bush. I don't know what it is; it just tends to bring out the good in people, people get on well. And um, towards the end, it got to the point where uh, the chopper crew, because that, that place was the same, it was so remote, most people that t- were turning up were flying in. Um, it got to the point where the chopper company would drop people off. With the People got to know who I was and that I was there, and the chopper crew would drop people off, and they'd be waiting at the hut. For me to get back they've been dropped off that day while i was out trapping and like oh you paul derek said to talk to you about <laughs> era you know and yeah. brought heaps of food and there's some beers there and there's this and that and um that would work like that you know and often they'd leave a heap of food behind um and i'd give them venison to take out or as i literally had it like in the raw where i draw dots on the map exactly where a stag's roaring and and guys would go and shoot it, you know.
1: Mm. You, you almost know.
2: need to know where the possum trappers are when you're going over there next time.
0: Yeah, well that that's 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 the you know the high watermark of local knowledge, isn't it? Yeah, you know, here's a map.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. Literally
2: yeah. drawing a dot. Cause you know how a red stag will park yeah. right in yeah. a spot. And um that that example where and I did that a couple of times. Um <clears throat> And I was trapping on a ridge, and you go in the trap line every single day, and there was two stags, like across the valley, about six hundred mm-hmm. away. Um, and I had a couple of plucking stations down that end, so I'm standing there plucking, and just for something to do, they'd be roaring anyway anyway. I'd roar at them, and they'd they'd roar back. and well, they were roaring at each other anyway, but they were always like right on the spot, you know.
1: Mm. Mm. So at some stage, while you were in there, you you uh, you started uh, taking a dog with you, Tessa. Yep. That was the start of the companion dogship, And then the training that came after it, or it was, was training dogs, something that you'd done before, or your, your dad was into or family was
2: into, how did, how did that come about? Um, well, I grew up around dogs. Like I said, I started hunting with an air rifle when, when I was yep. seven. Um, by the time I was elite, 10 or 11, I had a 12 gauge shotgun and was shooting doing bird game bird shooting in the season and shooting possums and rabbits and magpies and all of that with the 12 gauge, but it was always with dogs around. So my, my dad did do a bit of um, duck shooting. I think he did quite a lot when he was younger, but by the time I was around and hunting, he wasn't doing much. Um, but he always had a Labrador and he always had a couple of farm dogs. So there were always dogs around mm. um, And as I grew up as a kid, I had several dogs um, and most of them weren't that good. I had a couple that were okay. I didn't know how to train them. My dad didn't know how to train them. And it was really just that old school thing of just take it hunting and see how it goes. And some work out, some don't, you know. Um, But it was all of that experience from a young age and being around dogs that much um, I knew a lot about dogs. I knew how to read them. Um, I knew how they would react to certain, um, certain things. And and also, actually, it was when I was in the UAWs trapping that I decided to get another dog. And I knew growing up that I didn't know how to train them. And I had seen it go basically as bad as it can go with dogs just turning up absolutely shocking and being mm. unusable as well as having a couple of okay dogs as well growing up just by getting a good lab and just taking it out and just it just being a good dog and it working out Um, but never being anywhere as good as I knew a dog could be Um, and it was when I was trapping and I was doing a lot of reading at the time too a lot of books and magazines and I decided to get a dog and that I wanted to work out how to train dogs and train one properly Um, And I started doing a lot of research for quite a while before I got Tessa. And Tessa was the first dog that I had done some research and I put some of it into practice with her, even though it was very basic and still quite rudimentary at that time. Um, But And she was just an awesome dog as well. Like the raw material I had there, she was just gold and um and i was living in the bush hunting full time you know and i just put a bit of that basic stuff into her and and the result was just night and day like compared to the dogs i had growing up compared to what she was like Mm. um and basically hunted over as far as the dog training goes and getting into that then i hunted over her for a few years and i continued to research dog training and and put that into her um, including doing all the big game indicating dog stuff and then getting into bird dog training stuff with her as well. She did that as well. Um, and then it was later on uh, when I wasn't living in the bush full-time anymore, I started getting into dog training even more and more and and researching it more and actually just getting dogs, getting an 18-month-old dog and, and working with it, you know, and I just trialed all, loads of different, um, techniques and styles of dog training and um, and again, just continuing to research and research all the old school English bird dog training, sheep dog training, modern styles of dog training. Um, I got right into trick training and e-collars and place boards and all that stuff and experimented with it a lot, with a lot of different dogs and, and basically over time developed my own system and worked out how I wanted to do it. Um, and... Yeah, and then that brings us right forward to um, fly. Have you, did you, have you seen anything about fly? Yeah, I know, I know
1: fly. The name fly came after, um, after Tessa. Yeah, and yeah. and then you had um, print. That's right. So it wasn't print and print came around after fly, but they were together for a period of time. I don't know if you still got yeah. them both.
2: Yeah. yeah, her mate's got fly now. of yeah. She's basically his dog, but he she went to her on a deal that I can grab her back any time I want, but um i don't think i'm going to need to you know um I'll, yeah sort of got usually got too many good dogs and end up giving them away to mates but um
1: well that are, that answers one of the questions i had how transferable are they after they're trained because you know i've i've had i've got some some good mates that i trust that have have asked from time to time is whether they can take my dog deer hunting with them and i'm like too much effort's gone into that i'm not really wanting to do that, but, um, I've, I've always wondered whether you could transfer the training and how long that might take. And I'm taking you off topic here, but, um, it's a, it's an interesting question.
2: Yeah. Um, very transferable, but the training and the knowledge of the person taking the dog is just as important as the dog. Mm. So you I could give my best dog to someone that knows nothing about it and how we hunt and how we've trained and how to handle the dog and reading and timing and all of that and it'd be I could give print to someone and it's it could be damn near a waste of time yeah um or hmm. you know giving fly to my mate ben um he'd actually trained a dog with the deer dog blueprint. And um and then got busy with rugby and stuff and ended up moving that dog on and then he wanted to get another dog. So he'd been through the whole blueprint, knows the whole system. He's experienced hunter and um I took him out hunting. We went out for a couple of days and he just followed me around hunting over fly and gave him a rundown and he's good as gold, you know, but he's experienced and he knows the whole system, so
1: Yeah, and he, he just need to take on your whistles and commands, I imagine the way that you've done it. I, I, I find it Actually, quite proud of it. When I uh, I go into a camp with um, another bloke that we might be hunting with, and um, and they try and give her the odd command or whistle, and it's just flat out ignored. It's mm. hilarious, and I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. You know, she's my only. It's only my four-year-old boy, who um, who mimics me that can get her to do anything. No,
2: no one else can get her to do anything. It's quite funny, but um, and every dog's different on that too. And um, a lot of dogs. Uh, Prince not too bad. Prince pretty easy go lucky and um, you know people that know him. My mum can say here, Prince, she will he'll come or whatever. But Fly, if someone, if if I'm still there and someone says here, Fly, she just looks at me. She used to just look at me real awkwardly, just like what is this person doing talking to me? Mm. Hard case about it. And every dog's different, but that's one big one. While the owner's still around, it can be hard. You, the owner's really got to get out of the picture for the next person to spend a bit of time with the dog. and But it should be pretty frickin' transferable, all things done correctly.
1: Okay, well, that's good to know. Not that I want to
2: do yeah. that.
0: I've got about a million questions here, so...
1: Go, Mark.
0: <laughs> so, look, I, I, I've, I've had experience with dogs. Um, so I've, I've, I've uh, shot in England, birds... Wing shot, so you know I've seen retrievers. I've um, I've hunted with dogs in Australia for pigs. I've even taken my dog hunting on a couple of times when he was younger. So, but I think for a lot of us, hunting with dogs is is you know well for a lot of people hunting's not something they know a great deal about, but they're interested in, and certainly hunting dogs is the next level up. So, when we're talking about indicator dogs, so an indicator dog is a what? What is an indicator dog?
2: A big game indicating dog is a dog that's trained to stay close and stay steady and take us to big game so we can shoot it either on a wind set or on the on a ground scent.
0: Okay. So so, so it stays with you so it's not it's not ranging off in front of you and barking, something like that. So it's within within whatever your sight. Does it does it does it point? Is it a pointer?
2: Uh, a big game indicating dog or deer dog doesn't have to be a pointing breed, you know, I, I use uh, for it. And, you know, Tessa was a Labrador, so they don't have to be a pointer. Um, pointers can be really good at it. Some pointers can be can take more. That's why I like using heading dogs because the, they're so easy to train and so biddable, it's almost cheating compared to some mm. other breeds. But um, so it doesn't have to be a pointer to indicate deer, you know. Sure. To, yeah. So, but pointers can be extremely good, and they have the sneak, and it is bloody good if they sneak in and lock up and all of that. But it doesn't necessarily have to be.
0: So, if it wasn't a, a pointer, so what? What would I? What would I see? What would happen if I, I've got this dog in front of me? It's in, you know, it's ranging in front of me. I I see that it it's starting to focus. So I'm assuming that it's got, you know, it's either on a scent trail or something like that. What What happens?
2: Uh, if it's tracking, it puts its nose down and starts yeah. tracking. Yeah. And that can be, that gets quite obvious. Um, there's a there's a few different variables in that, but it gets pretty fricking obvious, you know. And part of what we do in the dead Dog Training Blueprint is we actually do quite a bit of scent work um, and we do ground scent, skin drags, and we also do set up on wind scents. Um, and, and, you know, a dog will track, a dog will hunt on scent with no training, you know that's sort of, yeah, yeah, I've, I've
0: actually that. experienced that, yeah,
2: but a huge part of that training that we do with the skin is more about training the dog and the handler to work together, but a, a big part of it is also so the handler can learn to read the dog. Mm. you know we set it up and we know where that scent skin drag is. um so we learn to be able to tell when the dogs walking along and puts his nose down and starts tracking because, it's quite um subjective, right? Because um, you know, to me, some of the things that my dogs do, that's extremely obvious. I'm like, man, the dog we're onto something here it might not be as obvious to an experienced an inexperienced person. But having said that too, it's not it's basically anyone can learn it. Um, I think so- it goes back to those
1: transferable skills, Paul. You go through the the, the training with your dog as you've put it together. And the answer to Mark's question will be different for each dog. What it does once it finds scent is probably fairly unique to that dog. Lots of breeds will do the same thing, but you'll learn what your one's doing and how subtle or how obvious that might be. Missy, my dog, she was quite subtle on the ground scenting, but wind scenting, you can't miss it. She's almost on her back legs, you know, trying to catch that scent and and tell you what's going on. And, um, you know, on a recent trip the other day, you know, we, we were following, ground scent to a to a buck and we knew that it was fresh scent because it, it had rained overnight and there was no other tracks and we had fresh deer tracks. So I put Missy on those and we potentially weren't paying enough attention because by the time I realized she was pointing, I'd almost walked past her. She was off to my left in the long grass, locked up on a buck over the other side. Um, and when we spotted that, we got it on video and it looked really cool. And there was a buck right there, but her lock up is is more subtle than I've seen on a lot of other dogs. Okay. But I'm used to it. Yeah. And and so, I suppose uh, for me is that
0: are we are you training the dog to follow a particular scent? So will so will a a, a big game dog follow pig or will it follow a deer, or do you need to introduce it to those scents? so how so is it Can it be a more generalist dog or are you training something to say for instance to lock up on deer
2: um that well in the blueprint we go over how to keep it target specific so yeah keep it on just deer um and the main way we do that we do do some non-target species aversion training and in the blueprint I show people how to do that with a rabbit and a possum which are yeah. two of our most common non-target species that we have issues with Um and then uh, and, and you can use that stuff to basically um, you know teach your dog to go past whatever you want Um as far as Later on with other species, like if I use print as an example, um, I didn't do any non-target species aversion training with him with pigskin. And um, I just did all my scent work with uh, deer and then started shooting deer. But the very first pig he ever smelt in the bush, he was very, very keen. Actually, real keen. It was hard case. And different dogs will be different on that. It's just a okay. natural thing. It's it's interesting. Um, print with pigs was he was very keen and curious and forward and confident. Just he, he could smell something. He wanted to take me to it. Um, I've had dogs where the first time they get on to pigs, particularly if it's a boar, they'll start. You'll you'll be able to tell. And and even I've never seen a dog not want to track a pig. Its first pig, um, but I have seen them be very wary and slow down and and. Stay close, and all of a sudden, a dog that's wants to range out and push its range on deer. All of a sudden, he's slowing right up, and he's looking over his shoulder and staying real close to me. And next thing, I see a pig mark, you know, and, and I'm looking at a dog mm. tracking its first pig. Missy yeah. came straight into heel with
1: her first pig. Mm, she, yep. yeah, she's quite soft, and uh, yeah, she as, as soon as she smelt it, she was she was still tracking it, but she was right next to me rather than out in front. She
2: was not sure what was going on, so um yeah having said that too the first pigs that print took me to a small pigs small Mm. and it's amazing a dog's ability to smell to know what it's tracking before it or smelling on the wind long before it sees it um but so from there and even if you do do quite a bit of aversion training at some time or other, a dog is going to indicate or show interest to an animal that you that you're not going to want to target in the future. And the key there, so in that case with print taking me to those pigs, if I don't want print to indicate pigs, the golden rule is don't shoot pigs over them, and mm-hmm. they art pull them away. And then every if, and then if if he starts tracking, and I'm sure it's a pig mark then I'll pull him off it and go somewhere else. If he indicates, takes me in on the wind, and I find out it's a pig, pull him off it. If he takes me to deer, if it's a deer that I want to shoot, I'll shoot that. And quite quickly, the dog will start. There's no payoff on the pigs. There is on the deer, and, and you can steer them in that way. Um, yeah.
0: Which would be really good for roos, for instance.
2: 100%.
0: Yeah, because I think that's probably where you're going to get the most confusion.
1: Yeah. All my training was done up the road from home. Every morning we would pass ten to twelve Rusa wallabies. Yeah. Uh and she quickly learnt she wasn't allowed to even yeah. she'd look at them, but that it was a very subtle look. She knew she wasn't allowed to. And it's great, you're going up the road, you've got cows and you've got sheep and paddocks and things like that. She just got used to that's not what we're chasing. And um with the skin um wind training, I actually um, once gave a, a bag of skin to the mailman. And told him to drop it somewhere up the road for me. Oh, and I've asked the neighbors to do it once or twice as well. So I don't know where it is. So I can't, she yeah. she can't be tracking my footprints to where I put it. You know, I had big long sticks of wood with rope on it, trying to keep my scent away. I was riding push bikes trying to stay away from it. But just to really make sure that I wasn't leaving scent for her to follow and 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 leave a false trail here, the mailman, so what are you Jacob? said no mate. <laughs> just go up there about four k's and drop it in the in the side of the road somewhere, and I wanted to find it. So I found that that was a pretty cool way to do it. Hide and seek was my favorite part of the training it became a competition. so
0: every dog will have like a will have that lock that'll that that they will tell you that you' you know it, and that's just about learning about the dog,
2: yeah, and um. You know, like in the, I mean, uh, you know, if you look at Tessa, she was a Labrador, so she she didn't have any point at all. Well, she Mm -hmm. acted over time, and and those dogs that aren't a pointer, um, a big part of the it's it sort of becomes a point because um, you train them to stay close and be steady, and particularly over time once you shot a couple of deer over them and they know that's what you're after and it's a reasonably well-bred hunting dog or working dog that they'll they'll, they want to do it man they'll have a lot of drive if you do everything right Mm. so the dog wants to go after the deer it's it's ridiculous how obsessed they get with it and uh but you've trained it to stay close so when they start tracking or winding you just got a dog that's like, you, the dog's walking along, walking along, cruising in front, looking around all over the place. And next thing, the wind's coming from your left to right and the dog smells the deer out. They just stop and look out that way and take five steps and look back and they're just like, let's go. And, and the, whole, the whole attitude of their head and ears and everything changes. Um, there's actually a very specific profile. And with the dogs always out front, And it's kind of crazy how good you get at reading it, um. And you know, if you think about hunting for hours and hours and days on end, and then you just look up and you see that rear profile of your dog's outline, and you can't see that a foot's up, the tail's not out. They're not doing anything crazy. It's just the outline of the ears, and that. And but they'll also be nose up like that when they're Mm. real keen. Yeah. Um. And it really oh. does become quite obvious. It's not some freaky, masterful thing of reading the dog or anything. Like mm-hmm. anyone can do it. It's...
0: <laughs> a mate told me the story once about his, uh, I don't know who had, but they had a Jack Russell that they used to hunt with. And they reckon what the Jack Russell used to shake and, uh, and, and and whenever they saw the Jack Russell shake, they knew, and they reckon what it was was that Jack Russell knew the blast was coming. <laughs> uh, shaking is <laughs> actually
2: quite common. Prince,
0: yeah, it's, it, it's shaking. There's something here. They reckon it's, it knew what was going uh, to happen.
2: I've got a excitement about the whole thing. Mm. When Prince starts shaking, like if he's in the bush and sneaking in and getting really locked up, when he starts to get a quiver on, I know, yeah. like, don't. Move because this freaking thing is right there, real close.
0: Yeah. So, with the dog so look, to me, this is really, really interesting and strange enough. My my eldest, who's uh, nine, he said, even though we're watching media, and he goes, "Oh, I want a squirrel dog, Dad. I want a squirrel dog." And I said, "Well, couple problems with that, but no, not 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 insurmountable." So, is there a particular breed that or breeds that you should you know consider when you're doing this? Is there, you know I mean obviously certain dogs are better than others but within the hunting dog or the that that range for someone who was beat would be so if we've got someone like me or out there who's interested in this what kind of dog would you look for
2: um I I like the heading dogs because the uh, so what's a heading dog well a heading dog is a New Zealand sheep dog yeah so in New Zealand I do recommend that um nowhere near exclusively you know and, and- all the other breeds in a moment but um i really do like new zealand heading dogs they the um easy to train biddable you get if you get a strong-eyed heading dog they've got the sneak and the point and the, the i just love them i really do
1: they're an eye dog right rather than a so that is that a is that a border collie
2: or a hunter way uh, Damn near. It's, it's, uh, um, the New Zealand heading dog was bred in New Zealand by the early settlers, mainly from Border Collies. They're yeah. damn near a short-haired Border Collie.
0: Oh, okay. Well, yeah, oh, yeah I've had a Border Collie once. And I had a tricolor and It was the smartest dog ever had. Yeah, exactly. It was it a genius level thing.
2: Yeah, yeah. So heading dogs are the same. Very high IQ, very smart. The New Zealand heading dog is, to me, is – a lot of them are quite different to a collie in that collies, you know, people use border collies for agility and stuff, quite like fast and zippy and they can be pretty full on. Um, the right line of heading dogs, are they're just very calm, chill dogs. and But they've got an extreme drive at the same time. Just very calm, steady, quiet, methodical, very hard workers. Um they're a working dog, so they're designed to, they're bred to work anything with the hoof, basically. And that same obsession that that a good working dog has, they just switch that straight into hunting, and they just love it, man.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I always thought that when I looked at my border collie, that it was hunting when it was doing, you know, it.
2: Hundred percent.
0: That's what it's doing. It's just, it's just not killing. It's just, but it's hunting. There's the way it moved. Everything about it was a, was a hunting stance. So I mean, we've got. So things like you know, I'm thinking the more traditional things like you know, uh, you know the short, the short-haired and wide hair pointers, your Labradors, um, things like that. Are they you know those kind? Again, for people listening, those kind of dogs. Where are we at with those kind of dogs?
2: Yeah, hundred percent, and that's really the bulk of it, you know. And yep. I'll touch on heading dogs first because that's what I use, and people tend to do quite well with them. Um, but the bulk. The the vast majority of people following the blueprint are using um, G- German short ear pointers, German wire hair pointers. Vizslas is a very good, um, yeah, Labradors, Retrievers. We've got people using Spaniels and things like that. But uh, outside of, uh, like, apart from heading dogs, um, really your pointers are your, your go-to, you know. Mm. They are going to be for the bulk of people. Um, and i believe in australia you you can you you have you've got a list of dogs that you can use
1: um that's in in victoria
2: yeah um uh, they have that's... three categories of
1: of hunting zone so it's not a license so to speak it's a zone national park you're not allowed to take dogs the next level down you're allowed to take um, indicators or or hunting dogs they call them um and there's a list of breeds there Mm-hmm. and then the next level again is the hounds, hound dogs hunting blocks
0: very different yep. again yes yeah,
2: so yep. so the bulk of people are using german shorty pointers vizslas wire hairs there's quite a few retrievers in new zealand we've got a lot of people using heading dogs um but then there's freaking all sorts too man and and you and you brought up jack russells um i've known some great jack russells and fox terriers because they're heaps of drive and they're small so they're naturally quiet and if you train them right they can be they can be really really good easy Um, in the helicopter exactly (laughs) pick them up and walk across the river and you don't have to you don't have to um, carry much food for them and stuff like that um and you know we've got dogs that we don't even know what they are because it's just a complete crossbreed that someone's got somewhere and just trained it and, and they turn out great you know um a hundred percent you want to go for the more you know that we basically laid it that's probably the vast majority of it you've got your heading dogs here um german shorty pointers wire hair pointers um vizslas retrievers english pointers too mm. um and and the, you know that's really the best way to go is go for those specifics, um, but you know, one thing that was all really cool with the blueprint right from the start is is um, people started getting it and they had a pet that the you know then they they were a deer stalk and they had an older pet that they wanted to have a go at training to be a deer dog and people have done that with all sorts of different random breeds so any dog can be a deer dog but you are better off to go for those 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 main few breeds
0: and that was another uh, big question from my point of view i mean i i, I suppose in a way i'm very traditional with dogs and i I'm tend to have outside dogs um so how how do you go from a hunting dog to pet does that work or is this a are you making a working dog here or is this something that can be a pet
2: a hundred percent like if i mean every dog as a pet as well, right? You know, there's our oh, prince asleep on the floor right here. It can be a family dog. A hundred percent. Um, The blueprint, we do start out kenneling the pup outside. And uh, with the Palmico dog guide, you can combine that with the blueprint. And and the Palmico dog guide, we also cover crating inside right from the start. And mm. do that. The blueprint is all kenneling outside right from a pup. And in both series and particularly in the blueprint, it's pretty freaking controlled and structured right from the start, right from a pup, and that's quite an important part of it. It's quite uh, confronting, I have to say. If
1: you're a, if you're a, like we've always had family dogs inside mm-hmm. dogs. Uh, I think I asked this question on your um, QA session and you laughed at me as if to say, Come on, mate, get real, uh, follow the program, you'll be right. Um, <laughs> but what, what question? I, you know, I think I said something like, um, um, how do you, how do you, how do you work the the blueprint uh, in with your family? At the end of the day, our pets are part of our family, Uh, putting them outside in the kennel, you know, is probably not what we want to do. And you spun me around real fast and started on the next question, uh, which was fine. I, I got exactly what I wanted to hear. It was pretty funny. But I say it's confronting because we've always had inside dogs um, and, you know, they're not on beds and all that sort of stuff, but they're on the floor on a mat, no different to Missy's now. But the day I got Missy home and she had to go outside and for the first week you have to deal with howling. And luckily we're in the country. But, you know, you've I've taken a puppy away from its mother and its siblings and I've thrown it in a cold kennel in winter you know where we are is reasonably cold um my wife did not like that one but you know and and i had to really sit down with her and say this is a program this dog is purchased for a reason it's a it's a tool that i'm going to be using to excel my hunting and once i'm finished this it will be able to come inside but you've got to persevere with me and that was a conversation that had to be had and i think a lot of people have to have that discussion but now fantastic pet and family dog. Great for my four-year-old running around and tearing the place up, but when she's working, she's working. She knows it.
2: Okay. And you've got to have that—that exactly what you said there. You know, some uh, uh, there are some difficult conversations for some people, and and it's a it's a mind shift. Um, But that structure and control and patience and work early on with the pup is really important, and it really does completely change what you end up with, you know. If if it's if it's just um all all go, no restriction, no kenneling, no separation, no control and structure early on, that pups a real handful by the time it's six or eight or nine months old. Um so yeah, and that's part of why I added that crating so you can create your pup inside if you want to. However, I, I sort of talked about it in a recent Q and A that that um, that more controlled style of training in the blueprint it really you'd really do end up with a different dog. It's it's calmer, quieter, uh, more controlled, more biddable, listens better. It's more focused. It's just you create a completely different thing, and. Like you say, you know, and in the blueprint, we do go over bringing the dog inside and getting them around kids and, and all of that. And, you know, my dogs are pretty freaking spoilt now. They sleep in, or you know you know what it's like, but um, yeah, they sleep inside and go everywhere. they pretty much never in a kennel now. My dogs have, no. many, like my kennels bloody weeds all growing through it. And-
1: I, got, I gave mine to a,
2: a, someone else who started the program. I said, here, come get my kennel. Mine doesn't. And yeah, and that's the thing is, um, you know, we have that principle of freedom and responsibility and it's about giving the dog more and more freedom and responsibility as they get ready for it. And it can be quite counterintuitive. The more, If you try and give a dog too much freedom and responsibility too early, they often end up developing bad habits that end up limiting their freedom and responsibility for the rest of the dog's life. But if you do it all properly controlled and structured early on, you end up with a, a nice, well-trained well-adjusted dog and they end up having an awesome life of lots of freedom and they're always around you Mm.
0: Mm. yeah look i've always so i've always had the dogs outside it's actually only recently with our lab being that the age he is he comes inside now at night but i've I've never actually so i want to know how that works so i'm certainly comfortable with
1: that Mm. i'll fire you the next question um
2: all right, have you got something else? Sorry. Oh, I no, gonna... no, 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 no. Yep, yep. Go ahead. Say on the kenneling in or out, if it's that debate, um, you can do it both ways. So we've got options. So you can create the pup inside if you really want to do that. And we've had people like um, in Canada and stuff, and it's like minus God knows what, and the pup they have to it has to come inside. Or well, people that really want to do that, we, with the Palmico dog, uh, the Palmiko dog guy, we do have that option there now um but the we do have that option if, if you're an outside dog kind of person the blueprint's pretty heavily geared that way anyway you know yeah
0: no as i just, just said I, I we want a pet but I, I i suppose i i am of the i don't know the generation that dogs stay outside so. yeah well this
1: is not this is not a this is not a generation style thing this is about like it, it The fact that the dog has its alone time away from people and it's out there, um, you know, then lends itself to it's got to sleep outside. If you're at a hut in the bush, you Mm -hmm. know, and there's other people around and you can't bring it in. It's got to be outside. It's got to be comfortable with it. Um, And the one thing that, you know, I used a lot um, to explain to people why I was doing it is that dog's got to be bored when I want to train it. So I'm the most interesting thing in its life. If it's running around playing with balls, toys and children all day and then you decide you want to train it. He doesn't want to know you. You're not fun. All right? That's the ball's great. fun. So that that makes absolute sense in, that's in my brain. One of the
2: biggest things, and that's a really good point to bring up, is the way that a pup or dog prioritizes activities and that kennel time, sitting quietly, alone, and then when you turn up to put a long line on it to start training it that needs to be the most interesting thing that happens that day. And then the dog's really engaged in training and it likes working with you and for you. I mean, Ian just nailed it there, said everything I could say about it. If the pup's like playing with kids and balls and just all this crazy stuff the whole time, um, and then you try and train it, it's not going to work. But, but the thing is, is once you've, and it's only, it is a long time, but it's not either. It's only the first 12 months or 18 months or so of, structured training and then the dog can play with the kids all day and balls and at the beach or whatever you want you know it's um that whole thing of how a pup or dog prioritizes activity is huge Mm.
0: and look i think more broadly you know that the the certainly i've noticed is that the once upon a time it was actually not an easy thing to travel with a dog you know but everywhere you go now is dog friendly you know so having a dog that is able both, you know, that you're able to have it outside, but it's controllable inside, it's actually probably a great bonus too. Oh,
1: and out in public. Yeah. I, um, I've always marvelled, you know, you're driving down the road and you see someone walking their dog on the footpath and you think, fuck, I could never do that with my dog. Like, my, I wouldn't trust my dog didn't run under the car, uh, you know, and across the street or wherever it wanted to go because there was a cat. This one now, you know, I'll go for a run up uh, up the road. It'll be fairly busy. A truck will come by. I mean, I won't even blink. I won't even think about whether the dog's going to come off heel or not. She stays there because she knows that that's where she's supposed to be. And, you know, that's I've never had a, a dog trained like this before. It's it's great. It's great to have as a family dog, um, just so well under
2: control. It's good.
1: She's mm. ripping up a sheepskin.
2: Yeah, like you say, all, all of that training that goes in, all the training control that goes in on the hunting side just sets them up for such a nice pet eh? They're so well-trained and calm and... Yeah, um, so, you know, Missy, I, don't, I, I no longer hunt if I can't take it,
1: right? So it's difficult sometimes to be able to take a dog on someone else's property. Um, and then I go, you know, one of the places that I went the other day, Chasing fellow on a farmer's land. I've been there quite a few times. He understands who we are. Like, you know, we get along really well. I asked him for the first time if I could bring Missy along. And the first thing that a farmer thinks when you say, Can I bring my dog? Is Are oh, you going to bring your pig dog? You know, you're going to, you know, they automatically hunting dogs are thought of over here as pig dogs. And by the time you explain to them what an indicator is and you know what she does and how she works, they're pretty good with it. And um, in and around a hunter's camp. You know all of the people that come to the camp. She's the camp dog as well. You know she's sitting there. She's not in your face. She's not begging for food. She's not doing any of that sort of stuff. She's just there, and she's quite calming. So all of that um, comes out of the blueprint, and it's a, yeah, it's just a fantastic program.
2: Um, it's yeah, it's so nice to have a well trained dog. Eh? And sometimes I forget. Um, I had another dog a while ago. Um, I only had it for like a weekend, just looking after it for someone. And um, holy hell, I forgot how much work a dog can do. Mm, mm. My dogs are just so cruisy. They're, they're basically with me the whole time. And the back of my truck's all set up for them. And i um, got sliding windows with grill. And so the, the back of my truck's really just a rolling kennel, you know. And Yeah, we got, can't do that here.
1: We can't do that here. Someone will smash your windows and take your dog out. Um Really? It's too hot. It's too hot. Yeah.
2: Oh yeah. Yeah. No. You you, you
1: leave your dog in the car in Australia, and, and you won't have a dog when you get back to your car. Yeah. Some, so someone the would some handed good it in.
0: will come and save it for you.
2: You're yeah. yeah. In the canopy with big open sliding windows. With yeah. So I've so I, I, I copied that concept. I had a
1: big uh, reasonably insulated canopy in the you know in in a like a new Ranger. Uh, vehicle at a at a range of canopy, which was an insulated back canopy. I put a, a fridge thermometer in there just to see what it was like. Um, got up to forty eight degrees inside that canopy, and it wasn't that hot outside. It just it's amazing how warm over here you, your your oh. cars get up to. You just can't do that to dogs. Yes.
2: Yeah, no. so how do you do it then? How do you
1: what? I I, I take my dog with me. But like if I'm if I've got to go somewhere, I can't take my dog. I don't I don't take the dog.
2: Oh, I see the. You just put the dog on a lead, and the dog comes into the shop with you, or wherever you go, basically.
1: Yeah, well, there's there's only so many places you can take your dog into shops. You can't take them to the supermarket and go shopping, things like that. So it's, she she just has to stay home, but into places like Bunnings and you know wherever else, you know hardware stores, she just comes with me. It's fine. Yeah, uh, most most of them don't really worry. I, I live in the country; it's a bit different. Yes, yeah, so um, got
2: a whole year. I get what you're I know
1: where I can shop. I know where I can eat. I know where I can go based on who will let me take the dog.
2: That's and the like you know, hot day in summer where you are.
1: 40?
2: Uh, yep. Yep. Yeah, it's hot.
1: But yep. it's the same, like, you know, we're out at the Pilliger in summer, so the Pilliger's out west of Queensland, western Queensland, or western New South Wales. Um, we were dealing with 38 to 40 degree days that yep. we were hunting in. Um, Missy was underneath the, the camper as, as often as she could. But, yep. you know, you, you, your dogs are acclimatised to so that sort of stuff as well if you're hunting it a lot. Um, if I was to go up to Northern Territory and chase buffalo and things like that, she couldn't come. She, yeah. You know, she she would, she would blow out so fast. It'd be ridiculous. The heat uh, gets away. Um, yeah, why? and with no water. Like, there's no groundwater. Mm. Yeah. So you have to carry all of that. She's got a, a harness that carries four litres of water. That's a morning. Mm. She'll be yep. through that.
0: When we start, we're hunting up with pointers up in North Queensland, Um, for pigs and they used to range out in front of you, they'd go. And, um, after an hour or so, you'd basically catch them up, you know, Mm. they would just slow down and then that we'd have to stop and the guy would have to water them. I let them. They literally, you know, you eventually you'd walk them down. They just, they'd go poof, out ranging and stuff, and they'd be gone. you see a little whippy tail moving through the grass. We yep. didn't get in on any pigs. An hour later, there's there's a dog gone a low, and there there he is. I can see him.
1: Yeah, they right. I'm going to hit you with some more questions before we run out of run out of time. If that's all right. Yes, uh, So, um, guns over dogs.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: In Australia, we don't have suppressors. Mm. I am like a lot of the guys here, terrified of blowing the eardrums out of dogs. So obviously we don't shoot over the top of dogs. What's your opinion on um, hearing damage with them at heel? If you're not shooting over the top of them, is it you know is it is it more than what we're sensing? Like their hearing is so much better than ours. You, we can handle it, a shot or two going off. If you're shooting all the time, you want hearing protection, and really should have hearing protection all the time. But the odd shot from from time to time we deal with. How's the dog dealing with that?
2: Uh, yeah, shooting over the dogs, um, yeah, so, yeah, it was a bit in that question, so are you asking, like, do I think the dogs, all things being equal, if the dog's at heel right beside you, you're sort of level, and you're shooting an unsuppressed gun, is the dog getting the same amount more or less hearing damage than us? That's
1: pretty much the question, Mm, Yeah.
2: Yeah. Um well, I wouldn't ever shoot over her. Mm, but I yep, could shoot yep. to the side if she's in yep. front. To the side um, of the day, yeah. And and to the front and to the side and how close are we talking and stuff like that? It's all Yeah.
1: yeah. Well, let's let's just wind that back. If she was level with me and my muzzle is in front, yep.
2: I'm still yep. concerned about hearing, but how
1: much should I be concerned?
2: Oh, I don't know because I you know, to, to for me to be able to answer that responsibly and and knowledgeably I would have had to have done hearing tests on dogs and all. yeah no fair enough yeah I don't no. really know but i I do know um actually exactly like people all dogs are different and and some dogs um Princes hearing and I think it might be a bit hereditary with him Prince pretty well freaking deaf now he he he's not completely deaf but his hearing is not good at all um which is quite yeah quite interesting and Um, Fly, I had done a lot of shooting over her, but mind you, mainly with a suppressed triple two. Yeah. I did a lot of shooting over her. Her hearing was still very, very good. She used to quite often, she'd be sneaking you in on the wind and she'd fully lock up if she saw the deer, but she'd often fully lock up. And I don't know what the hell she's doing. And I'm looking and looking and then, but she's heard it. She can hear it. She'd lock up on the sound. Yeah. a really useful tool print hasn't got that. he's always been pretty hopeless with his with his ears. Um, but every dog's different so and, and people are exactly the same eh um some people's hearing and that that this is from quite good scientific stuff that I've seen on this um, some people working in the same environment, one person's hearing will will deteriorate a lot faster than, than others. That's just a hereditary thing. I think dogs are very similar. I've seen some dogs that are, haven't been exposed to much shooting at all, and their hearing drops off quite quickly. Other dogs that are exposed to quite a lot, and their hearing stays surprisingly good. But um, other examples would be: I've heard of someone making a dog stone death in one contact with goats with an unsuppressed two-four-three. So the dog's hearing was pretty good, and it was he was actually a contract hunter, which you know culling. D- Goats for Doc, and he was on a really hard block. Um And he found a mob of goats, and and uh, I think what you know he was sort of crept over a bit of a rise or something. And the dogs, the dogs locked up, and here's this, this mob of goats. And he he didn't want to get the do- he didn't want to do he all he wanted to do was shoot the goat. He didn't want to get the dog back in behind or anything. And he did that, shot three or four goats. with well, his two, four, three with the dog right in front of the muzzle. And he said after that, that dog was just stone deaf. So. Yeah. Um, I think it sucks you guys aren't allowed to use suppressors in Australia. Yeah, we all do.
0: Yep.
2: And I know from personal experience, just shooting unsuppressed rifles consistently will damage your hearing, so it's going to damage your dogs as well. Yeah. And I think it's just all about managing it the best you can. Mm. And, um,
0: I think being in front is – this is only personal experience – being in front is, is is much more, you know, it hits you a lot harder than being by the side. Nice. I remember once I was, I was, we were at a property and the, we were in a, a, a ute and there was a guy up in the ute and on top of the cab they had a shooting rest set up and I was sitting on the ground in front of the ute. So there was no way it was any kind of, you know, and he shot and that sound was like, nothing else that was just it was like it was painful you
2: know but I, um, I was muzzle blasted when I was about 15 or 16 a guy muzzle blasted me with a unsuppressed 708 and it was about a foot the muzzle was about a foot behind and a foot to the left of my left ear and that was like getting kicked in the head man like yeah kicked right in the ear and I was all off balance in my ear and that was instant permanent hearing damage in my left ear yeah yep yeah. Um, But 100%, as soon as you get behind, it is much better. It's it's shocking how much worse it is when you get in front of that muzzle. So the
1: follow-up question to
2: that then would be, um, if Prince Herring
1: is deteriorating, Mm. he's still highly effective as a deer dog with his other senses. Massively. Right. So this will sound silly. Have you heard of mutt muffs?
2: I, I, I am.
1: A, I, yeah, I have. Yep. I've considered that. I'm so worried about a hearing yep. that I've considered the defense dog mutt muffs that they send service dogs in, uh, you know, into active zones to protect their hearing. But I've also been mindful that it might, um, you know, taking away one of those senses is going
2: to change the way that she's able to hunt. But you don't think that that would be the case. No. Each dog different again, but. Yeah, each dog's different and 100% that a dog's hearing is an an incredibly useful tool. It's just as useful as our hearing. Um, Like my hearing isn't great anymore. And um, um, I noticed that in the bush, like back in the day, bush stalking, I used to shoot a lot of deer off hearing them in the bush. You know, I'd be stalking and hear a stick crack or something and go, I barely ever hear them now. It's pretty bad. It's pretty bad. Are you Are you wearing hearing protection when you shoot? Uh, nah. <laughs> uh, I do duck shooting, but I'm using, um, you know, I'm using long barrels, big suppressors. Mm. Uh, I've even gone to the extreme of using subsonic ammunition sometimes. And, you know, with so that's another big subject in itself. But, um, and I've got mild high velocity loads. I try to get it as quiet as I can. I'm very cognizant of it, you know, and, Anytime I'm sighting in, I use hearing protection. Um, But yeah, I I don't when I'm deer stalking because I mean, when I say I hardly ever hear them, I definitely do hear them when they're right in front of me, you know? And um, so my hearing, I still use it a lot and that's why I don't use hearing protections because I want to be listening when I'm in the bush. Um, But yeah, it's a hard one because then if you're going to use those muffs, then the dog isn't using its hearing for hunting. So I guess you're just talking about saving the dog's hearing for when you're not hunting, is it? Mm. I just, I,
1: I, I feel like um, you're putting the dog, you know, into, you know, a, an unfair amount of pain, yeah. letting, letting off those sorts
2: of noises. I'm just trying to be as careful as I can. I what, guess. What do, you um, do? do you fire an uh, unsuppressed into fire without hearing protection?
1: When you're not hungry? usually no. See oh. the thing that Missy has given me as an indicator is time. Mm. She's given me she's on the top of that ridge. Yep. She's telling me there's a deer there. At that point in time, I'm putting hearing protection in. Yep. Um, I'm calling her back to heel in a lot of cases. I'm taking my pack off. I'm laying it down. I've got all the time in the world because she's told me there's deer there before I even come over the over the rise. So I can be fully prepared. It just gives me all the time in the world. I don't do running shots. Um, like I said, I do a lot of mentoring stuff. So I try and encourage as much, you know, steady shooting as possible. Mm. So as often as I can, it's prone, you know, over a pack. So I've got time to do what I need to do to the point. And I'll, I'll ask you another question about that in a minute. But th- that's that's pretty much the way I hunt now.
2: Yeah. Um, well, hey, if, if man, if you've got time to put hearing protection on your dog, I think that's freaking awesome. You know. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm I'm at the
1: point where I'm considering electronic earmuffs. So yep. she can still use her hearing.
2: Can you get electronic earmuffs for dogs? I reckon I could <laughs> jimmy them up and make it work. <laughs> like love- I'm just trying to figure it out. That's all. <laughs> yeah. Awful.
1: Yeah. yeah, I don't know. I don't know the answer
2: but to one that. One thing but I will tell you is it's incredible, it, you know, how well dogs can get on with bugger or hearing and and how well they do without it. But having said that, there's no way I would ever say, um, oh, don't worry about it, you know. No, I think mm-hmm. the more you can do to protect your own hearing and your dog's hearing, the better. it's. And it's a, it's a difficult, complicated sort of a nuanced thing with so many sides to it isn't there and it's very dependent on your situation and how you're hunting and mm-hmm. what you're doing and all of that but yeah
0: well i mean if you if you had the chance the time for the dog well if the dog you know indicated that there was something if if you have the time to to call it to heal and then have it healed and step one two, one or two steps in front of it you know, and it and it's on the at ground level. Then I think you probably would be minimising the sound a great deal.
1: There's never oh. been an animal that I've taken with her that I haven't been able to step forward. Yeah, so that's not been a problem. Once she's locked you, into I, yeah. into point, she's. Te- I've still then got to find that animal. She's telling yeah. me it's there, but I've got to find it. That's so I'm it. usually moving forward of her to do that. So, so
0: I think that that would greatly um, reduce the the sound issue.
2: Mm. I agree, and I think at the very uh, yeah, I, I agree, and I think. Shooting an unsuppressed fire over a dog, I think I wouldn't want to do that. I'd want to get it in behind. I I try not to shoot my suppressed rifles over top of my dog. Mm. Um, I think, as you say, getting the dog at your side is is reducing it a lot, like it really is. Um, But yeah, if you can put the dog on the sit and get three or four steps out in front of it, even a couple of steps, that's going to reduce it a lot more too. Uh, yeah. So I'll give you a. a this will this
1: will come to my next question, and this is how to retrain out a bad habit. Okay. She's been solid for a number of deer, goats, various other animals that I've put her onto. The last trip I went on, I had the opportunity to put her ten meters behind me. When I turned around, she was gone. Not good. Never happened in my life.
2: Ever. 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 Where she
1: was. You- Six kilometers back to camp.
2: Holy shit.
1: On the trot. I Once I knew she was gone, i fretted quite a lot. I climbed yeah. up onto the top of a hill. I got phone service. I sent a text message back to camp to my mate that was back at camp. That would have been less than 15 minutes by the time I managed to get that text out. He said when I got back to camp, she was here before I received that text. She flat out bolted.
2: Did she lose sight of you?
1: Uh, yes, yeah, she would have just, yep. Did so she? I put her up on a track and I went down into the bush and I was mentoring someone, so it wasn't my rifle. It was a different rifle. Hmm. It was a different No, She's never broken a stock, ever, ever. Um, So that concerns me. So now I've got a carabiner on a zippy cord that she's going to have to go on until I bust her out of that. But, yeah, that was a concern. Never been on that land before she just tracked herself back the way
2: that we'd come six K's back to the camper. Are you sure that she didn't think that you went back? No, nah, there's no way. No. Okay. No. So that's, that's strange. I have seen it a couple of times and it's, it's really, uh, surpri- like it's surprising, you know, how onto it dolls can get. How effective they are, how good their hearing and smell and all of that stuff is, and the stuff they do completely blows you away. But they've still got the IQ of a three-year-old kid, human kid. You know? And she's a GWP female and the three-year-old. And so she's this every now and again, the stuff that they do, you're just like, oh my God, you know, they still got that pretty low IQ. And I've seen dogs a lot of the time lose track of you in the bush. And and I've seen them. And and all of a sudden, uh, freaking out and running around on know yeah, Where, yeah. where they yeah. gone? I did the same thing as part of the training. I I hid from her
1: on purpose when we were out in the bush, and she went through that. And when she finally tracked all the way back to find my scent and come and find me, yeah, she and she never ever ranged away from me again mm. after well,
2: that. I'd be bloody surprised if she somehow didn't get mucked up and turned around, and she she. Th- thought you had gone back to camp, and she just went full blast. Mm. Somehow got that in her head and went full blast back looking for you. Um, But aside from – I'd be very surprised if that wasn't it. But aside from that, yeah, I'd just be bloody careful with that. Yeah, so like I said, I've now got a a zippy line
1: um, cord that goes on my belt. And because I have the opportunity to step forward of it now, I'm just going to clip her on and just see what happens next time. She's yeah. never like she she's not comfortable with lots of loud shooting. She's yeah. fine. I could shoot a deer and she's fine. Um if I was to take her to a range and start letting four, five, six, seven, eight, ten shots off, she's gonna be pretty pissed off and she's gonna yeah. be looking for somewhere quiet to go and lay up. Uh, but not run off. Not run that off.
2: Would be something um that would be good to do some drills on, you know, some shooting drills. Um, even if you can step it down to a twenty two or something like that, so you're not ripping through your expensive ammo and blast in your ear and the dog's ear and all of that. But and, but work up and do a couple with the big gun too. But if you can, do some drills on that, just some shooting drills of getting the dog in at heel, and then putting them on a sit, stepping forward, five or so steps and firing a shot. If they try to follow you up, put them back and just get them used to that sequence of events, mm. that, that could help a lot. Yeah, I, I, I bought a home and pulled the twenty two out. And
1: um and started doing some simulated shots again. Uh, again stalking um, you know, I would do it with this with a with a skin. So once she found the skin and she was pointing towards that direction, I'd then just simulate and I'd shoot the skin on the tree. Solid. Yeah. Not a, not a not a movement, not even with the two two three. Yeah. So yeah, we'll just see how that goes. But I just thought I'd I'd share that because it was just different. Yeah, that's very different.
2: So it's mm. kind
1: of... <laughs> <laughs> I I was fr- I freaked out. I didn't know because I had no idea where she went. Yeah,
2: that
1: was- uh, it was it was only I was yeah. freaking out. Yeah, it was only, and I had to process it. I had a mental, uh, you know, young fella with me, who'd shot his first deer. I had to get that sorted. It was forty-five minutes, nearly an hour before I could actually go and find her. Yeah. Um, and at that point, we started to pick up on her tracks, so I could see she was going in the right direction. I was just hoping she'd go all the way back mm-hmm. and not get lost somewhere along the way because was a fair haul. Yeah. Um, cool. So there was that one, um, Frank. You know Frank,
2: yep.
1: Frank Maga, yep Maga Magali, um, he's joining okay. us.
2: Yeah,
1: Megali, yeah. I think it is. He's yep. joining us in in the camp um, next week, which is great. He's bringing his dog, um, which will be a lot of fun. He asked two questions that I was going to uh, put to you. Uh, one of them goes back to when you were talking about, uh, I think hunting uh, shooting ducks with your dad. Did you ever shoot deer with your dad? Was that part of your your
2: background? Uh nah. no, never got into it. No. Nah. Um now he wasn't oh he had an old 303. Um I'm not even aware of him ever even ever shooting a deer. Yep. Um and I did very little hunting with my dad. Um he basically showed me how to load and aim the air rifle and sent me off down to the cowshed to shoot sparrows. Yeah, magpies and <laughs> Yeah. When I when he first gave me a 12 gauge shotgun. He took me hunting once for about 15 minutes, and we walked down to the cow sheet and found a possum. And he had one thing that he wanted to teach me about the 12-gauge shotgun. Um, and he shot a possum out of a tree from about 20 yards. And you know what a 12-gauge shotgun with bird shot does to a possum at 20 yards? It's, there's basically nothing. You can't see any, you know, yeah. make a couple of pinholes. And then it was a single-barrel shotgun, and then he reloaded it and put it point blank to the possum. And blew it in half, and he said, "See that?" And I said, "Yep." He said, "Okay, there's the gun." <laughs> that was his safety. <laughs> that was his safety. safety
1: briefing. Oh, I'm sure you understood it. I
2: did.
1: Yeah. His other question was: um, um, since you've now gotten into the dog training and you've been doing this for quite some time, would you even bother going hunting without your dog?
2: Uh, barely. Yeah. Yeah fairly um i would i would and there's a couple of situations that i think about sometimes um places in new zealand where you're not allowed to take a dog that i like to go hunting um i'm going to be making some videos soon just sort of general hunting stuff that i might want to talk about stalking deer without a dog so i might do it like that but uh, yeah other than that when it's it's for a you know, particular purpose, yeah, not really. in it's really- you're going
1: to drop, you're going drop your success rate quite a
2: quite a bit, I imagine. Yep. I yep. Will. yep. And it'll just be kind of like missing an arm or a leg, you know. Yeah. Be yeah. Weird. No,
1: understood. Okay. That they were Frank's two questions that I told him I'd ask. My last one, and I'm sure Mark's got some more, but I'm going to keep going. So sorry about that, mate. Um,
2: Go for it, man.
1: Because we live in Queensland. Mark and I live in Queensland, and we don't have the ability to just wander out and go hunting in Queensland because there is no public land hunting in Queensland at all. A lot of us don't have access to blocks, so we travel a lot, which means there can be quite large breaks between hunt trips. Is there a specific type of thing that you might do with an indicator to ready it for a hunt if it's been inactive for four or five months? COVID would have been a great example. People just couldn't get out. Is there are there specific drills or any you know, or a dogs just going to pick this up normally or naturally when you go put them back in the bush they're just going to instinctively get back on track or should you be doing some pre work?
0: Yeah, look, I, I had a similar question. I, I probably to me it was more about stickiness. So what's you know it, it, the same way of saying it, if I were to do it and I might be hunting once every couple of months, what's the kind is there a is there a timeline here is there a horizon when we start to lose this? or And how might you do something about keeping that dog at that level?
2: Mm. Um, Yeah, really good question. Uh, There's a couple of sides to it, but really, you know, once you've done a, a long and comprehensive system like the blueprint and you've shot a few deer over them, it is incredible how well it is set up and how it's just there and how long a break you can have, and they just go back to it and pick it up. Like, you know, they've never had a break, and and I've seen I've I've had dogs that have had massive breaks. You know, six eight months a year, and and they just go back to it, good as gold. They might a hmm. little bit quicker, a little, but probably probably no worse than you or I. If me or you, if we hadn't been hunting in a, in a year or six months. Sometimes it sort of takes, like bush stalking, for example, um, it might take us half an hour to just get back into the flow of it and slow right down and actually go quiet enough. Having said that too, though, once we've done a certain amount, you pretty much just slip straight back into it. You mm. know? They're actually very similar to us in that respect. Um, and yeah, so honestly, they they come back from a break incredibly well. Um, and same with the training. Once it's all set up. Well, the training doesn't stop. Like The, the commands you teach your dog, mm-hmm. they're not
1: just for hunting. They're, you know, uh, People comment quite often, you know, we've got these two other dogs that have never been through any training. They're great house dogs, you know, whatever. Great house dog, one's a giant mastiff. But you open the door, they're out. Missy is sitting waiting to be told she's allowed to go out the door. And And, you know, you do those sorts of things every day, going through a gate. Going through a fence, you know, giving a hand commands because people, you know, the postman might be there, and you just tell her to sit and be quiet. All of those sorts of things. I find that they, those natural commands, you, they just day to day life. My observation when I took her hunting last time was that she had um, the aversion training had diminished. Oh yeah, that's probably a good right. Ruse were back on the menu, <laughs> and I tell you what, I walked up a big hill chasing a pot of kangaroos. And I was pissed off by the time oh, I got up there. I
2: indicated them and you thought... Yep, she,
1: she was so keen to hunt. Yeah, She picked up on the first pot of roos and off she went. Yep. Um, and, you know, I followed it all the way up and it was fine. Once I told her that that was bad, yep. um, she, was set, she was fine for the weekend. I just hadn't considered that maybe I should get the skin drags back out before I go and maybe just remind her what smell we were looking for mm. um, or whether that was even worth doing. But, yeah, it was an interesting observation.
2: Yeah, so you'll get little things like that and sometimes, um, you know, their their speed and range might be a little bit off sometimes after a big break, mainly only because they're so keen to get going, Um, particularly with a younger dog. As they get older and older, you know, Prince, like six now, which is basically a dog's prime, Hmm. Um, and he's pretty freaking consistent and just is what he is. Um, but sometimes, yeah, he'll be a little bit too keen for a while and I have to give him a couple of growlings, put a bit of pressure on him. Uh, maybe put the long one on him and just let him drag that around for a bit. And um, but man, they hold they they hold on to all that stuff pretty, pretty good. And, yeah, could. and you know, one thing I would say about a big game indicating dog is the whole modality of it's actually pretty simple, particularly for a dog, you know, the the we need them to smell the deer and a a dog can't not do that. And then the rest is just control, you know? So, um, it's, it's a, it's a very simple thing, but the control is to a fairly high level. Um, and as Ian said, just in your day-to-day life, and the blueprint teaches this, if you don't know it already, um, just in your day-to-day life with your dog you don't let them do crazy stuff if if i see my dog go to do i am like, hey, cut that out you know so the whole time you are really like enc training never stops yeah Um, i don't really think of it as training it's just part of owning a dog that yeah everything's done in a certain way you know and um yeah even when i'm out well my dogs i live in town here and Um, my dogs run off leash with me riding the bike and up and down the beach and all of that but everything's still done on my terms if they try to break and take off they i call them back and so you are constantly handling it anyway yeah
1: Mm. Hmm. they were my they were my questions Mark, I don't know if you had any no. Other
2: ones. I'm
0: I'm I'm pretty good. I, as I said, I just wanted to kind of uh, you guys obviously both understand the, the principles and the blueprint, and so. But more about if I wanted to get into it, I wanted to ask some of those questions. So I'm quite happy about that because I've always had dogs. So I'm eighteen, so I've had dogs. So we had family dogs before that, but I I owned a dog when I was. A, and I've always been pretty much a stickler for training, but so I understand the concept of training a dog and having a dog that's that's, you know, biddable and, and command friendly, but this is a new kind of this is a next next, you know, spin of the wheel type thing. And as I said,
2: I've got a I've got a boy who wants a squirrel dog. <laughs> a squirrel dog. What a lack of squirrels with <laughs> the mane. <laughs> yeah, it's a problem. It's but he does,
0: like, he does like come hunting with me, so, you know, we, we, we might be able to move from squirrels to, to goats and pigs and deer, you know. We might be able to, we might be able to take him on that
2: journey. What yeah. a style of hunting for a kid, eh? It, this will be a hard case one for you guys in Australia. Um, one of the very first forms of hunting over a dog that I did was taking, like my dad gave me a German short head pointer putt when I was about 10. And uh, it was completely untrained and just and high drive and just really full- on, but um, and it was actually my dad's friend who was one of my best friend's dad, so uh, as well, he took us out with and he had a G- GSP, that's actually where we got the pup from. He took us out when we were kids and we went up into the bush and his GSP, which is the last thing you ever want to do with a bird dog or a deer dog or anything but um his dog was just treeing possums so very very similar to that style of squirrel hunting that you're talking yeah. about and um then he was shooting them so he sort of showed us that style of hunting and then we used to do that with my gsp when we were about 10 or 11 and we'd go up into the bush at the back of the farm and my gsp would tree possums and then we'd shoot them with the with the air rifle and and yeah that was something about that it was really fun as a kid but that was you know the beginning of watching a dog work and reading a yeah. dog and all of that. Cool. Yeah. Look, it certainly changed the way that I hunted.
1: Like I said before, it, I, I had a purpose to start with, and that was I needed a dog to track blood because I cannot see red on the ground. Mm. It doesn't matter if it's on green or it's on brown. Unless the sun shines off it and it shows a bit of a gleam of the sun, I, I just can't see blood. So... You know, I was shit scared of that. You know, happening and and me not being able to find something or track it down. And the type of hunting we do, you know, you you know, you're shooting deer in the bracken fern. You know, once they go down into that fern, oh, yeah. it's very difficult to find them. So having a dog that, that was the ultimate. Having an indicating dog was was a you know an awesome byproduct uh and finding the program was was really good because we've got a, a really nicely trained dog as as uh, much as my wife thinks that it's the most ridiculous thing in the world to have a dog that gets in the way all the time mm. she's always in front yeah. <laughs> so she thinks that's a pain in the ass but that's all right we can deal with that um but other than that i think um i think if you if you're looking at getting into dog training it's a great program even if it's just for a family dog the other the other program that you've got is excellent um, uh, look it up. We'll put the the links on the page for people to go and have a look. Uh, post up any other questions. We'll fire them your direction, Paul. And if you answer them, that'd be great. Um, but other than that, I think we'll call it uh, at uh, over two hours of chatting. It didn't take long. <laughs> and uh, I just want to say thanks. It's been a, a great chat, learning a bit more about your your background and your history. And um, yeah, I'm sure people
2: will get a lot out of this. No, thank you. Thanks a lot for having me on. I really enjoyed it.
1: Uh,
0: right, awesome. And- yeah, it's been great having you, and certainly learned a lot. And I think we'll we'll um we'll post a link to that book too, mate. We might you might have to go on a second run or something. We'll get some, we'll try and get some movement on that book as well. I reckon.
1: Uh, when you're ready to come over to Australia, and um, uh, you know you can fly your dog here. There's no quarantine once you get here, okay. and um, it's a hundred
2: percent on the bucket list, and I'm serious about that too.
1: Yeah, well, if my my next trip to New Zealand, mine will be coming with me. It's, you know, it's it's the cost of another seat on the plane. Not too bad, eh? No, no if it costs you um, $500 or $600 return, it costs your dog pretty much the same. It's just a long day for them in the crate. But you pretty much drop them off first thing in the morning and you pick them up when you land. And um, they go out and have a wee on the airport lawn and
2: off you go. Is there yep. much, any – I've heard rumours about big costs and testing and – uh, quarantine or something, but it's not not between
1: not between Australia and New Zealand. I, I moved over to New Zealand for um, my wife and I moved over there for three years some time back, um, and we took all three of our dogs and literally dropped them off in the morning at the uh, at the dog handlers at the airport, and they came off on the baggage carousel with the rest of the stuff.
2: Yeah, that's interesting. And what one other question quickly is what would be the story with me? obtaining a firearm over there or bringing one over something like that visitor's permit
1: yeah you can bring your rifle you, there's um there's a one former that you've got to fill out to import a rifle to australia um and there's a one former to export your rifle back out of it, it you know once you know the process it's quite simple you know i take groups of people the other direction it's the same process in reverse mm. um it's easier if you buy rounds here than bring them with you if you're a reloader You know find a factory round that's going to suit you and and use that because it it, yeah quarantine can be fun with rounds you know on on your permit you say one rifle with x scope and um one box 20 20 rounds of seiko whatever Mm -hmm. um when you come back after shooting one round the quarantine says well you said you had a box of 20 you've only got 19 that's not what you said on your form i'll take the rest yeah we've had that happen um, so there's, there's, there's ways around, but it's, it's honestly, it's a form. Uh, I think it's, um, 30 days before you've got to fly, you've got to submit it. They send you all your permit paperwork. If you go through the motions, it's, it's done and dusted.
2: That's it. I'm doing it and I'll be picking your guys' brains on some spots too when I come. So when no, when you're ready no, no, to no, go, no, that yeah, won't we'll
0: be hard. we'll take you, mate. You won't, we ain't, you don't need to pick us, we'll take you.
2: Just unscrew the
1: can off the front of it. Otherwise, we'll right. go missing that, it. That, that'll, that, 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 will that'll, that'll cause you some grief. Yeah. I'll do that. <laughs>
2: yeah.
1: Awesome, man. All right,
2: we'll let you go. Thanks again. Awesome, guys. Thanks, guys. We'll see you later. eh?
1: Doing great. Cheers. Peace out.